tell you things aren't so great. You can't go on thinking nothing's wrong. Uh, that was a demo of Drive by the late, great Rick Ocasek uh, of the Cars, um, uh, who uh, passed away, I think, in this, this last week-ish. Yeah. I, I, don't, I don't know what day or week it, it is might have been. It might have been the week before this. But. Um, and uh, I'm sure uh, everything's been said that, that needs to be said about, you know, what a great uh, artist... Uh, he was both as a songwriter and a performer. Um, and then in addition to that, as a, as a producer. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I, Paul, I think for me, I, I have to focus on the fact that he produced the blue album for Weezer um, in a way that created um an utterly distinct sound for a band that we have learned uh, from their output, uh, certainly after and, you know, a little bit before, if you listen to the demos, um, was not really uh, on the level that he brought them to um, in terms of their sophistication of the sonic development. Uh, yeah. He, he melded grunge and pop and punk um, with the popular kinds of distortion that day to create an utterly unique sound that affected I think kind of changed the course of what you know the most popular alternative rock would be going forward yeah uh I think that's that's a pretty easy case to make um well I don't know about easy but it's certainly uh it's a good there's a good case and I certainly love the blue album sound uh he should also be noted uh, as a pioneer of being just incredibly fucking skinny yes Uh, Yes. Thin he, ass dude. <laughs> he was tall and thin. Um yeah. he really needed a burrito. Um <laughs> and now he's eating one in heaven. Uh, um, I hope. uh you know, and and I think uh it's just affecting that he he was able to create well the reason his his passing is so affecting is because he was able to create music that kind of impacted my life from the like decade i was born onward um and uh you know he also produced some uh, bands i didn't listen to like bad brains he pro- he co-produced romeo void's never say never that song and that album which is fucking awesome um i do not know that i should look into it uh yeah good stuff um and uh uh yeah and of course wrote just a ton of amazing songs for the cars yeah, the cars. Uh, uh, which one do? What's the name of that album? I don't know. The one I have with the woman with the red lipstick on the cover mm-hmm. is uh, really good. Like every track is good. Um, yes, you are referring to the famous uh, one. Uh, well, the cars is yeah. the one where she's driving the car. <laughs> That's right. Yes. Um, yeah, yeah, and it's got a uh, "You're All I've Got Tonight," famously, famous, uh-huh. so famously covered by the Smashing Pumpkins. <laughs> um. <laughs> Uh, which is uh, when you hear the Cars version, uh, just the, the, 
again, the sounds that that, that they use to create uh, utterly unique pop landscapes. Yeah, that synthy new wave pop rock was uh, good stuff. He's yeah. Really, and they, they were onto something with that. They did it better. Uh, mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, I, I think that um, I was surprised uh, with my uh, beautiful audiophile rig how good this music sounded oh yeah um no you know the 70s the 70s made great sounding records i got i got no surprise there that's Uh, true yeah yeah. but i think that 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 this kind of pop music that's pulled up not just the writing but um with someone took such care with it i shouldn't be surprised as i just uh kind of it's rick okasic bitch filleted his production (laughs) um paul so yeah r.i.p yeah Rick to a legend yeah um, yeah yeah you know i just in closing like i uh i just for some reason remember learning that rick okasic produced the blue album as one of the first times i remember learning who produced things and yes. what production was yes so i think that's why i don't know maybe that's why his work sticks in the minds of people of our generation because a lot of people really love that blue album so i don't know uh great work rick yeah um and uh, uh, you know what? We're not going to hold the Green Album against you. <laughs> it wasn't no. your fault. <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, you know it. Even it sounds pretty good. And, it does. Uh, yeah, it's just boring songs. That just happens. Eventually. Yes, it wasn't. <laughs> it wasn't his fault that the band decided that every single uh, guitar solo would just mirror the vocal melody. <laughs> uh huh. Exactly. <laughs> Uh, okay, no Weezer moment here. Uh, yeah. We have an actual opening bit. Uh-huh. Um, Paul, the movie Yesterday uh-huh. came out this year. I didn't see it. Me neither. I watched the trailer. I did. I, I was interested in the idea. But for those of you who don't know, um, <laughs> it's about uh, there's a there's a worldwide power outage, and um, a uh, guy. Let's let's. Let's find out the name of the actor here. Hold on. Uh, we like to have accurate information here. Yeah. Um, uh, this character's name is Jack Malik. Um, and uh, dear God, why does Google just not tell me the name of the actor who is like the star? Why do I have to scroll down? Here it is. Himesh Patel. Um, okay. So Himesh Patel plays a character, Jack Malik. Um, who, after a worldwide power outage, um, again, this is just based on the trailer, uh, wakes up and, and figures out that he, uh, through a series of comic misadventures, that he, a extremely struggling uh, artist, musician, is the only person who remembers the Beatles. Mm-hmm. Um, and their songs. Yes, and their songs. And uh, he uses this uh wisely to rise to fame and fortune and mm-hmm. i'm sure there's some sort of romantic uh i don't know i didn't read the spoiler that i get that uh, all i read is that i read a couple reviews that said the uh third act was extremely disappointing so <laughs> huh so um i take it from that that the correct happy ending uh didn't happen with like the beatles rematerializing and i professing oh. that they are the true authors and killing him for his <laughs> I don't know. All I know is that in the trailer, like James Corden, he's on the James Corden show. That's the uh-huh. name of that dude, right? Yeah. Uh, does the 
horribly annoying karaoke videos. Um, yeah. Uh, I think I've managed to watch none of those. Uh, um, I watched some of the Adele one for some reason. Um, probably because someone posted it to Slack. Um, he's Himesh Patel's character is on that show and uh, suddenly James Corden is says, well, we have people who claim that you're playing their songs and it just shows that like, you know, like the, 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 the feet of two people walking in, which is important because one of them, you know, is wearing bell bottoms, but doesn't have any shoes on uh-huh. like Paul in right yeah, the cover of abbey road so i assume that there's some point in the movie we realize that of course john lennon and paul mccartney are both still alive and mm. uh there's some interaction there um but uh I, again i didn't look it up and i don't care because that's not the point of this segment <laughs> uh the point of this segment paul is if this happened mm-hmm. um uh to 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 you Mm-hmm. Or to me, or to both of us, what would be the best and the worst band for <laughs> it to uh, for for to be the subject of this phenomenon? Oh, this happens ha- if we're talking about it happening to one of us. Oh man, yeah. I mean, the worst would be some terrible band where now you're cursed to be the only person in existence who remembers their music. Oh, uh, interesting. But-, <laughs> but see, isn't that like kind of the ideal situation where you're just like, oh, good, this band, like that's fine, I'll forget them. That's. I'll forget Maybe Slipknot. So. I don't know so, anything about Slipknot. <laughs> like, if someone was like, wait, you guys were talking about Slipknot on the podcast. Who's that? I'd be like, oh, sweet. <laughs> okay, fair point. That, yes, you could mostly not pay attention to uh, the or Slipknot songs that you remember. Or Nickelback to be easy. Yeah, yeah, that'd be too easy. Slip. I, you know what? I've got to say, I think I'd rather listen to Nickelback than Slipknot. Um <laughs> Um, I don't even know what Slipknot really sounds like, but it seems pretty bad. <laughs> um, uh, and, you know, you would also have the satisfaction of your Christ-like sacrifice in being, in taking on that burden for the world. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, maybe that's a good point. What I would actually, be the worst? I actually think the worst for me... Uh-huh might be Radiohead. I mean, number one, because I couldn't listen to them recording it. But number two, that would be something that I would be unable to, like, like even if I could bang out the melody to some of the songs. Yeah. I'd be unable to do it in a way that, like, properly represented it. That would be kind of a nightmare situation if all my Radiohead records disappeared. That's a good point, because with that, you're talking about a lot of work and skill to reproduce mm-hmm. what they've done. Whereas with the Beatles, I mean, obviously they had a lot of that too, but most Beatles songs work great as just a singer songwriter mm-hmm. with the guitar type of thing. One of the criticisms that I read of the movie is that other than a throwaway joke that uh, Oasis doesn't exist anymore either, um, they don't really explore the consequences of the Beatles never having yeah. existed. <laughs> like, yeah. All other music is the same. Uh, no, it's one of those things where it's like, yeah, the the consequences of the Beatles being gone would be that the world of music certainly and the world itself would be vastly different. <laughs> so, yeah, um, that really makes uh, it's incoherent on its face that way. Sure. <laughs> um, but um, the best what would be the best, Joe? Um I don't know. I think I'd almost like get a little vengeful with that. I mean, I had I had some thoughts um, mm-hmm. 
you know, I thought about like, I thought about something like eliminating Pearl Jam. So like the Smashing Pumpkins could have like <laughs> been, you know, kind of the popular grunge band that uh-huh. persevered. Um, just taking that chance. Yeah. Um, I thought about Metallica. I don't know. Fuck Metallica. I would be yeah. really glad to be rid of their music. Uh, Metallica's not that bad. They're not, but I just don't want, I don't know. They annoy <laughs> me. Their lyrics are annoying. Um, uh, let's see. So that's interesting because you're actually taking the best as what I was saying would be the worst sort of. Um, uh, what else would be really uh, good? I don't know. Um, from a personal enrichment standpoint, uh, something like in sync would probably be pretty good because mm-hmm. you just work out real hard and uh, learn some dance moves, and um, you can probably you can probably uh, be part of a you know like the not that good of a singer member of a boy band um, where you're just supplying these awesome songs. Oh, that's true. And yeah, getting I mean, rich and famous. You know, that's smart. Like if you're saying what's the best in terms of like you're able to kind of take their identity. Yeah. Um, in, in a way that, um, have you seen Hot Tub Time Machine? Uh, no, I've never. Where Rob, Rob Corddry, uh, his character, he decides to stay back in time. Okay. And he, uh, spoiler alert, um, when, when the people come forward, they find that not only has he invented Google, but he's also stolen all the songs of Motley Crue and is a, like, is a world-famous rock star. Um, which is a good, that's sort of it. You know, it's like a a pretty bad band that you know is going to be popular. Yeah, that's exactly what it is. And also you don't have to feel bad about stealing anybody's good music uh, if you're doing it that way. Because if you're stealing the Beatles' music, you would feel bad about it, you know? Yes. Or at least you should. Um, But if I'm stealing, you know, uh, uh, shit, now all of a sudden I can't think of an NSYNC song anyway. (laughs) Bye stealing, bye bye. Yeah, bye 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 is what I was trying to think of. If you're stealing that, like, uh, great. I I want them to not get credit for this bad thing. And even though now people think of me as that guy, I mean, Justin Timberlake survived it, so seems all right. It seems almost that you, the ideal candidate for your personal enrichment, would be a one-hit wonder whose mm. song was incredibly popular and that yeah. you could then just, all you'd have to worry about is getting that one song out there. Yeah. And that's then, a good point. And then you're like, all right, this I'm set up for life with uh-huh. this song. Yeah. And I don't have to worry about any, like, you know, trying to recreate like 50 songs. Yeah. Deep blue something it is. <laughs> How do we always make it back to them? <laughs> Oh man, that would be pretty funny actually. <laughs> and uh, that's like, a role we could really play too, because they actually were just average ass white guys. So, <laughs> if you if you if you um, Google uh, top the best one hit wonders, there's some great candidates. Yeah, uh, there's Aha with Take on Me, um, or Dexy Midnight Dexy's Midnight Runners with Come on Eileen. I mean, these are these are things yeah. that we could recreate easily now, those are great songs um yes. soft sells, soft sells tainted love now that you and i could bang out in a day <laughs> <laughs> absolutely wait and it's a great song it is am i remembering this correctly is that the one that was a 50s song originally or? so it has this this the uh full version of it 
also takes on a uh, uh, baby, baby, where did my love go? Like they play that song as part of it, but I don't uh, think tainted love is that also a fifties song? I thought Hold it was. On. Maybe I'm wrong. Anyway, uh, oh no, actually, oh yeah, no, it, was, it dates back to 1965. It was recorded yeah. by. Mark Boland's future girlfriend, Gloria James. Yeah. It wasn't a hit at the time. Yeah. But I have heard that version somehow. Anyway. Mm. Um, yeah, those would be good choices. Although Dexy's Midnight Runners was a, a, the famous stat about them is that they had a bunch of hits in the UK. So right. You, you, uh, on the other hand, that is the best of these songs we're talking about, so that would be pretty cool. Yeah. Um, I definitely cannot sing like him, though, so that would be a problem. Um, yeah, I think we found the answer here. Yeah, uh, and the answer wonder, is wonder rule. Chumbawamba. <laughs> <laughs> we could definitely make that song. <laughs> we could do that. All right. Um, I think we've learned nothing here. Nothing um, at all. But uh, yeah, if I ever watch that movie, I'll report back with how bad it is. But Yeah, I just could not be less interested in a premise. Yeah, yeah seems <laughs> unlikely. Um, okay. Yeah. Maybe maybe if heard we'll forget this podcast. <laughs> no, yeah. Some some hipster dumbass. <laughs> just, just, my, just like starts with his friend, they start recording everything we said in this podcast and it remains completely uh unpopular. It's just like it's, just, it's like our fan just like Mark and Alex. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. But we don't exist anymore. Yes. <laughs> and it makes no difference to anything. Yes. <laughs> oh, that'd be great. Yes, yes, and you don't stop. Cool ID, best rapper, you don't stop. Another fucking hundred fucking dollar freestyle for you and your mind. Come on. Yeah, you can never define anything but divine love. I'm a savage beast. <laughs> Slightly above average, at least. Nah, preference is relative. My references consistently uh, bring you to another vicinity. I hit you with the riddles consistently. Dead in the middle, a little triply. Little did we know that we triggered a fissure in the metaphysical imagery, elegant painted in oil. Love is a flower, see how dissolving the power is dissolving the hours as well. The tower, a bell at the top of it, a hawk, a pigeon, a dove, a vision of love. And welcome to Savage Beast. I'm Joe Gallagher. Uh, with me, as always, uh, drinking hemlock so he can join Eddie Money in Hell. It's Paul McLeod. <laughs> um, <laughs> R.I.P. Eddie Money, man. Um, uh, I saw his Geico ad where he, I think it was Geico, but where he had two tickets to paradise in oh God. the actual ad recently for some reason. And I was like... Uh, I don't know what the point of the story is other than like, well, there's Eddie Money. Um, uh, Get that money, Eddie Money. I I did not (laughs) consider that as I was saying it. No, it was very funny. Um, Good work. Um, Like, you know, if if Trump gets a second term, he's going to be on like the $20 bill. Eddie Eddie Money, that is. Oh, Uh, I thought you were saying Trump, which would also be awesome if we somehow ended up with a major bill with Trump's face on it. Oh, my God. Uh, (laughs) Seems so likely. 
Oh, man. Uh, the future government that does that will be interesting to behold, um, assuming we're all alive. No, they um, named an Ray- airport after Reagan, so anything's possible. Um, yeah. Well, I mean, people loved Reagan yeah. at the time. I mean, yeah. Uh, Trump does have historically bad approval ratings. We should acknowledge that. But the but, people who love it. Yes, that's true. Love it. Uh, uh, Paul, we have a we have a f- uh, uh, free flowing conversation that occasionally touches on me- mature topics ahead of us. Mm-hmm. Uh, but um, yeah, I have to say, uh, to be self referential as we love to be, I, I was listening to our Radiohead uh, Fantasy Draft podcast episode number six, where we each pick. Wow. 15 songs in a snake draft format um i went back and listened to it for the purpose of seeing how the format worked because i was considering some ideas yeah um and uh, i was also in a radiohead mood and the the thing that struck me about it was not only was your mixtape better that (laughs) it weirdly like you picked the songs that i would pick now (laughs) <laughs> like like 10 of them and it was a very strange feeling because um, i expected to be like okay i want this is going to be close i wonder whose is better and i was kind of like actually i just like paul's picks more damn i feel like my radiohead tastes have evolved significantly since um, the, that time yeah, I don't know. I guess it's just that I'm the better podcast host is what it comes down to. That seems to be the that seems to be the the uh uh the only logical conclusion. <laughs> um, um yeah, it stuck out to me one one that stuck out to me was that you picked the song Kid A and I was like, "Man, I can't believe you picked that." Whereas now if you picked that, I'd be like, "Yeah, of course. That's like one of their <laughs> most interesting and revolutionary songs." I don't know. I think the the real culprit is better headphones and better weed. Uh, uh, <laughs> opened my mind. Also possible, um, or just convergence of taste from uh, eighty odd episodes of blathering about this shit. I think that's probably the real yeah uh, issue here. Yeah, um, I'll buy it. Um, yeah. but thanks for the compliment. Yeah. Uh, I should go back and see if uh, I am if we have swapped positions, like you know the Democrats and Republicans changing positions on black rights over the centuries. Um, (laughs) It'll be just like that. (laughs) Pretty much the same thing. Us swapping (laughs) pearly for polyethylene is just the same thing. (laughs) Uh Uh-huh. Like, just like how Republicans were the Emancipation Party. (laughs) Pearly's lyrics actually being appropriate fit for that, uh, that comparison. Um, Okay, uh, that was uh, our um, flashback moment of the episode. Mm-hmm. Episode number six, a lot of fun. Um, yeah. Things were pretty much exactly the same back then. Uh, That's minus, minus encouraging or disappointing. I can't Minus cool AD. That was really the big, <laughs> Oh really yeah, the only evolution that we've had. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Um, that's okay. Um, yes. uh, I don't, I have nowhere to go with this, but I just want to note for the listeners out there. Uh, I recently listened to a, uh, high quality vinyl copy of wish you were here oh, on God, my headphone yes. rig. That recording is so fucking good. It is ludicrous. Um, uh, I don't know. Is anybody better than 
David Gilmore, Joe, I feel like listening to his guitar is like oh, uh, gazing at the face of God. No, he was. Uh, he is rightfully um, positioned at the top of the pantheon. I mean, I, I can't. Yeah, I, I'm not. I'm not in uh, qualified to decide he is the best, but. Well, but he so might be to your the, favorite, you know, which I think he might be for me. He's probably my favorite. I mean, certainly when it comes to um, something so pure and brilliant, mm-hmm. uh, there's nothing else. I was actually, number one, I, too, listened to just like my parents' old copy of that uh-huh. recently and was completely blown away. Yeah, um, so good. Especially even by the song, Wish You Were Here. Mm-hmm which you'd think would just have been ground into meaningless dust. But when you're sitting there and listening to it there, you're like, no, this is one of the best rock songs of all time. Mm-hmm. Like, and it's beautifully recorded. Yeah. Um, and yeah, Dave. And, and I also was thinking, you know, you're like, why with David Gilmore, you're like, what else can I listen to with guitar? this epic and affecting mm-hmm. and then you realize there's just nothing else like he's yeah what he does is not easy uh-huh. and in fact there may be no one else who does it <laughs> yeah no i mean it's really uh it's really a blessing that he ended up in a band that was totally cool with just like uh making him jamming be the centerpiece of its shit for long periods you yes know? I mean, totally cool might be a stretch. The <laughs> other main person of the band just grew to fucking hate everything. Well, okay. But for a decade, <laughs> they, they did that. Yes, totally. <laughs> um, yeah, thank you, Roger Waters, for uh, tamping down your assholeness for long enough for Pink Floyd's Oeuvre to exist. Um, but uh, And thank you also for the things you contributed that were good, Roger Waters. Um, yeah. Good stuff. Um, from a great band. Yeah, worth uh, listening to their output on do you vinyl. Think, do you think the kids like Pink Floyd? Do you think they give a shit? I th- I think so. I probably it's it's a little d- distant from what yeah they listen to, but um, certainly any of them that enjoy guitar rock, mm-hmm. Pink Floyd remains relevant to that. So. It's it's still like I was specifically thinking during um, uh, Welcome to the Machine. Mm-hmm. Um, like just weird experimental rock has not really gotten both weirder and better than that, you know. Like they, yeah, they set a bar. I mean, if you're listening to something like Portugal, the man, uh-huh. like obviously, I, I think you would enjoy Pink Floyd. That's true. It's so, not like such a weird divide as like, um, uh. Yeah, like Imagine Dragons and Pink Floyd or something like that. Yeah, well, it's all to bring it back. It's all like, even that. It's like it's all post Beatles. Yeah. So there are these threads connecting things from that time. I don't mean to say it all goes back to the Beatles, but just from that pop yeah. rock uh, revolution, we're we're still in the long tail of that. I would agree. That is not what the term the long tail means, but I'm using it, it that way. <laughs> it's fine. Um, That's not actually, key. I think you could repurpose the phrase that way. The metaphor still works. Let me put it that way. I th- I'm, I'm okay with it. I can't remember the exact phrase, but there's there's something that means like something called like the long century, which is meant to represent like, I believe, 
like 1780 through 1900 or something mm. like that. it's like there's like sort of like you break apart like the arbitrary number distinctions people look at like kind of these periods of time that were longer well if you ask me i think it should go from napoleon to world war one so anyway um. yes yes <laughs> and now a 20 minute division diversion on that it would lead it in well to Lana Del Rey, let me tell yeah. you. Well, I was about to say the segue was already there when we were talking about works which are uh, somewhat uh, derivative but excellent. Um, mm-hmm. um, or possibly somewhat derivative. Anyway, Lana Del Rey released her album Norman Fucking Rockwell. Um, she did a swear. Yeah. Yeah, I'm not sure I'm crazy about that as a title. Uh, but doesn't really matter to me because i can't remember the names of things anyway it's very rock and roll yeah i appreciate it for that uh-huh um it's uh i don't know maybe that's the thing with lana del rey over the years is at times she's been a little too on the nose sometime which mm-hmm. putting fucking in the name of norman rockwell is right there yes. but um uh i'll uh i'll just say it this album rules joe how do you feel about it do you agree with everybody else including me that it rules uh sadly i do yeah i cannot i cannot bring myself to say anything other than that yeah Uh, i really enjoyed listening to it let's play a song from it sounds good Sadness out of context at the Mariner's apartment complex. I ain't no candle in the wind. I'm the boy, the lightning, the thunder, kind of girl who's gonna make you wonder who you are and who you've been. And who I've been is with you on these beaches. Your Venice bitch, your diehard, your weakness Maybe I could save you from your sins So kiss the sky and whisper to Jesus My, my, my So, uh, it's hard to really represent this with just a section of one song because I think one of the things that makes this album great is the way the songs sort of wander in weird directions Yeah uh, but uh, uh, you get a hint there of the sort of updated 70s singer-songwriter vibe we have going on here. And uh, I don't know. What has your relationship to Lana Del Rey been previously, Joe? Uh, yeah, that's a great place to start. Uh, I think I've, I've always enjoyed her. Um, I think from um, back in the day when... Uh, Born to Die came out 2012. Um, Let the record show that video games was on one of your annual mixtapes. It sure was. And I think it. Uh, she immediately struck a chord with me as being a, an uh, very 
honest representation of the angst of the the you know late 20s early 30s uh millennial um in the in the 2010s uh that sounds very specific but um, when you live in brooklyn at that when you're living in brooklyn it seems uh to be the whole world (laughs) and uh I yeah, was attracted that's why both. those people will never shut up about themselves because <laughs> exactly. they just exactly <laughs> hang out with each um, other. Uh, and you know, I was attracted both to I was attracted to her voice. Uh-huh. Uh, her voice is is great, uh, and um, her naked um, sincerity and just t- dedication to her self destructive mm-hmm. um, love is what when i think about that that the song video games it's like yeah you are just in this and uh even though it's like destroying you and that and that kind of uh i've just followed that thread through to now um, yeah not that i'm a super fan or anything but uh um i've i've yeah always enjoyed her music yeah i've always liked it but i've never like i own uh ultra violence which i think was i don't know it's one of the albums in there mm-hmm. um and it's good, but I don't really listen to it that much. But um, something's different this time around. And I hate the idea that it might be um, that Jack Antonoff is involved and is really good yeah. at this job. I know. I hate that guy. Um, that's one of the things about this is, like, as I was giving this album my first deep listen, being like, shit, this sounds really good. And... Um, the uh the mu- the just all the arrangements are really good mm-hmm. and then looking at the credits and realizing that every song is produced by lana del rey and jack antonoff and written by jack antonoff and lana del rey and every instrument just about is played by him i was like well shit can't hate this guy for no <laughs> reason anymore <laughs> um so uh props to uh the both of them uh for this their work on this album um yeah, I mean, I think this is like, uh, I kind of liked Lana Del Rey's vibe. Um, that sort of like, I don't know, she's such, she's always on the covers of her albums, and she's such an interesting looking person in that she's gorgeous in a way that is both sort of really uh, standard. Uh, beautiful white girl type of look and also somehow sort of haunting which is hard to see how both of those things could be happening but maybe that's kind of like her music too and i'm just projecting from the sound onto the way she looks but um anyway uh this album is uh definitely uh incited a step forward in how much i appreciate lana del rey yeah, um, the storytelling on this album mm-hmm. uh, is more complex. Um, just and I'm not prepared to debate that with anyone, but it feels more complex to me. Um, <laughs> and her analysis is more cogent. Yeah, uh, and she's not just love. Love is hard. Guy is hot. Yeah, um, she's explaining her desire and and also her resistance to it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the first song she describes the object of her affection as a goddamn man child and how everyone gets bored of him and his poetry. Yeah. Um, but she also is like, well, well, she says, why wait for the best when I can have you? Um, <laughs> there's, there's, there's so much there. It's a good, 
literary um thought a consideration of like you know uh the yeah the uh, a bird in hand is worth uh two dudes in the bush i don't know yeah <laughs> um, um a uh a cornish game hand in the hand is worth a turkey in the i don't know yeah there something, you go. Like. something like that but it's 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 um you know throughout the album through what we just heard yeah um she's bringing you in with the lyrics uh in in uh it levels up from her yeah. previous uh honest and surprising angst into something um that's truly yeah complex and um you know almost scholarly <laughs> <laughs> yeah so uh, you mentioned um, the lyrics to Norman fucking Rockwell, the song, mm-hmm. the the opening and title track. And uh, uh, I wondered if you had this thought. For some reason, uh, as she's describing this uh, man child who acts like a kid, even though he's six foot two and has bad poetry and won't shut the fuck up, mm-hmm. um, even when everybody thinks he's a bore. Mm hmm. My mind just went to like, is she talking about Father John Misty? Um, <laughs> but that's just my impression of him. So um, anyway, I thought she was talking about you. Oh, oh shit! Paw it over. <laughs> uh, a gif of black kids dunking on me. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, that, that gift is called like super hot fire or something. Oh, is that what it's called? Yeah. I have no idea. Yeah. Um, yeah, uh, yeah, well done. Anyway, um, uh, I don't know. And then it was interesting because uh, we both read this NPR article to prepare for this by one mm-hmm. Ann Powers. Mm-hmm. Um, Fantastic article. Yeah. Really enjoyable. Really well done. Um, where she uh, mentions Father John Misty as a kindred spirit to, you know, sort of mm-hmm. the boy version of Lana Del Rey, which I think is also fair. Uh, I just think she's way better personally. Um but uh, yeah, um, I uh, I just want to call out some highlights before we get into mo- some of the more uh, uh, the more of the discussion around this album, maybe. But um, sure, yeah, I want to call out uh, Venice Bitch, the third track. Mm-hmm. Um, I really, w- if you told me that Jack Antonoff and Lana Del Rey made a meandering ten minute uh, psych rock pop song i would not really have high hopes and this song fucking kills um i don't know the first time i listened to it what's amazing about it is um just the way it sort of like floats into and out of um different modes of being like you know like frenzied and uh built out rock out uh to just sort of like the the chorus sort of thing and just different elements of the song all sort of layered on top of each other throughout as it builds and ebbs and builds and ebbs. Um, uh, I was blown away by that song, but the whole, the whole album other than perhaps like one song, I think especially like the first, I don't know, six songs or so totally classic, just great. Um, uh, updated modern singer songwriter type of stuff i don't know did you love venice bitch as much as i did joe or were you like you know i i think that venice bitch and uh 
I enjoyed it. I enjoyed that it was nine minute long. Nine minutes long. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that I probably picked up on the negative of the Jack Antonoff um, a little more. Um, mm. I thought that the at times, although the direction of the songs was always interesting, always changing, mm-hmm. that the production itself was um, suffered from uh, some real Rick Rubin. Um, bullshit which i call where he just like simplifies everything um and makes it loud and i I don't i don't like always love that approach um Hmm. um, man i did not feel that way interesting uh it it just i just picked up on it because i think it's something that's like been on all of lana's albums um throughout her career where she's uh, kind of relied on um, the poppiest of pop productions at some moments. Um, yeah. it, it didn't like, it, I'm not going to say that it, it, it was like some sort of major strike against it, but uh, I just noticed it as I was listening to the entire album mm-hmm. um, where I just wanted to kind of like tune into her stories um, more and more. And um, uh wasn't just like uh blown away by the the musicality of it um wow uh but i love i love hearing her sing this stuff and it's not really like it's really not a detriment to have it like to me like produced like a mainstream pop album yeah um uh in in that vein to me that's just that's just what's going to happen and they obviously tried uh you know a lot of interesting things with that so and a lot of that was was great so i appreciated that yeah Um, yeah that's interesting i'm going to give a totally different take on this which is i actually think it's an exemplar of how good uh sort of mainstream pop production can be Mm. in the right hands um uh, for one thing, you know, I gotta I gotta say it may not be exactly a hard rock album, but in many respects, this is a something you know a rock album, and uh, it's nice to see major resources being put into a mainstream version of that for whatever whatever the case uh, the the results may be. Um, but I don't know. To me, it sounds very uh, really clean, really um, not maybe experimental in any sense whatsoever. But um, just really, uh, it's often clever, let me put it that way, Mm -hmm. Um, and really uh, well executed, and um, I don't know, just a good sound. I enjoy, I mean, she's always had a good sound, Lana Del Rey, Mm -hmm. but I enjoy- Yes. Yeah. Her vocals have been well recorded. Yeah, and just the sort of like haunting- uh, thing that she's doing all the time <laughs> has always been there um but uh i don't know I just even the way he does this sort of like muted not in your face uh electric guitar distortion on a lot of the uh passages um is again not exactly uh discomforting or avant-garde but um just very tasteful and uh, uh effective i would say so um Reader, you be the judge uh, whether Jack Antonoff's work be um, uh, safe and boring or um, uh, tasteful and uh, beautifully executed. But um, 
that's yeah, interesting. I, I think that I, I think that I would just more uh, be reluctant to give uh, endless credit to someone, <laughs> someone you know, doing what has proven to be like kind of the baseline of like a really good album in yeah. terms of production. I'm giving him uh, uh, execution points um, rather mm. than creativity points for this. You know there, what I'm there, uh, yes, there we we converge. Yeah, for sure. Um, uh, but great album, yeah. worthy of the praise. Let's talk a little about um, this article written by Ann Powers. Mm-hmm. Um, have you read anything? Have, were you aware of uh, Ms. Powers before this? Um, I don't know. I don't think I was. Um, I don't. Yes, I don't. I'm not great at keeping track of who writes what, uh, yeah. which sounds awful. But in terms of like blog, uh, you know, good writing about music. Yeah. Um, I, I, I'm not sure. Yeah. Um, but uh, I guess this article <laughs> really came to my attention because Lana Del Rey uh, became quite angry that Ann Powers was trying to psychoanalyze her. Yeah. Um, and kind of said that the article was just wrong in a, in a tweet or two. Yeah. So uh, do you have those tweets? I'd be curious to hear her exact criticism. I'll look. Paul, I don't. All right. But I can because Let's... this is the internet. Yeah. Um, if there's one thing the internet can do, it's uh, produce tweets. Um Lana Del Rey's attack on Ann Powers reveals yeah. people forgets about criticism. Uh, yeah. Uh, let's see. Oh my God, how many? Uh, she says, "Here's a little side note to, on your piece. I don't even relate to one observation you made about the music. There's nothing uncooked about me. To write about me is nothing like it is to be with me." Never had a persona, never needed one, never will. And I think that last those that last sentiment where she never never had a persona, yeah, um, is what people really latched onto, um, <laughs> especially as you know, coming from a singer who took on a fake name and has created such a strong personality, yeah, and who was in her works, who had a problem early on where, um. She was backed by the music industry uh, uh, as a as a behemoth, um, but sort of presenting herself as some sort of indie ingenue. So people got mad about that. So mm-hmm. uh, personally, I don't really give a shit about that. But it is sort of funny to be like, I never did any of this stuff. She, she also <laughs> added later, "Don't ca- so don't call yourself a fan like you did in the article, and don't count your editor one either." Jesus Christ. Okay. Yeah. I think we need to consider Lana Del Rey for induction into the um, uh, completely self-absorbed, uh, 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 thin-skinned artist hall of fame, along with Billy Corgan. It's just all, at I all. Mean, it's almost all of them. I mean, I think that I think yeah. almost that like more than the thin-skinnedness. <laughs> um, it's just like a certain blindness that they are unable that you know if you're if you're able to write and create music this good you you have some disconnection from what allows you to do it yeah that might make sense i don't know it is funny because like that so we'll get into the article 
it's a pretty positive article. Um, you know, pretty she, positive. Yeah, she spends like a few sentences being like, you know, here are some ways in which the uh, music doesn't obviously excel, but because of these other things, it's great anyway. Um, and all Lana Del Rey can talk about is the the part where you know she set it up with um, maybe I don't totally love this one aspect. You know. Yes. Yes. Right. It's it's such a like grumpy. Uh, yeah. It's a, it's a, it's grumpy about like that anyone is writing any article that's not just like record good. Yeah. You I mean, know. I will I will say this. So the part she's talking about, you know, there's nothing uncooked about me. Uh, Ann Powers calls the lyrics to, uh, uh, I forget which song it was. It might have been Cinnamon Girl or whatever. Um, uncooked as compared to, like, Johnny Mitchell, which is a little unfair to just, like, uh, pick one of your favorite artists and be like, well, this album isn't uh, as good as one of my, the best thing one of my favorite artists does. Um so uh, I kind of get that uh, right. about as a criticism of the uh, critique, but um, uh, mostly this article uh, does a really good job, I think, of explaining the sort of uh, uh, frisson uh, that's an undercurrent to Lana Del Rey's music that makes it so interesting. Even when, like, you know, on previous albums, not all of the songs were, like, genius level um mm-hmm. uh but when you do it on the like on this album have a whole bunch of really good fucking songs um uh really makes them interesting more so than purely good songwriting often is because i mean how many how many singer songwriters male female whatever uh have you listened to where you go like this is really well done music and never gonna listen to it again um Whereas this has something interesting to it, and I think mm-hmm. it, this article does a good job of explaining that to some extent. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's it. I, I, I think anyone reading this article would be like, I, I'm excited to listen to this album. Yeah, <laughs> and uh, fascinated by its complexity. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I, I don't. I never don't think anyone would pick up. And be like, wow. Joni Mitchell. Uh, I'd much rather listen to Joni Mitchell than this. Is this that's this critic's clear point. <laughs> exactly. Um uh what was I gonna say? Oh, and I even agree with the critique. Like the lyrics aren't always like uh brilliant poetry. They are often excellent poetry. Um but she's right in the example she picked that it's not like uh amazingly compelling in and of itself uh but as we've discussed that's kind of a critique you can level at a lot of music that the lyrics are not mind-blowing separated from the music um yes absolutely (laughs) yeah which of course is is i think maybe a frequent um criticism that the uh singer-songwriters um are particularly uh offended by yeah you know that they are not um a poet who can also play guitar yeah and i want to note that even as the uh uh, ms powers was making this uh critique she called them b plus poetics which is not like a damning criticism you know it's just like yeah she's sort of 
not uh not writing the very best possible poetry right here as you said it is the kind of it is the kind of criticism that would say make billy corgan go on a profane rant in instagram (laughs) stories about the critic yeah uh i feel like there's some hip-hop people who would also freak out like this like i don't know push a t probably doesn't take criticism very well um one line i loved from this is she was talking about the noir in um in in the lana del rey's work and she said noir is surrealism unleashed in the city amidst mm-hmm. its noise and grime and electric lamp shadows like the art movements it privileges psychic interiority over other aspects of experience and I, I i love that i loved its discussion of how you know she she made so clear what this kind of darkness in the album actually is and and how it relates to uh, David Lynch mm-hmm. and other practitioners of noir, um, including many older films I had not heard of, um, and just you know what how that is a tradition within American art responding to like Amer- the American dream, um, and again yeah. is so so complimentary to like place this album like within that yeah um, that that spectrum and is part of that heritage. <laughs> As a huge fan of the noir aesthetic, I uh, have to say, I think that is probably part of why I like this uh, album so much. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, there were, a lot, there were a lot of interesting uh, moments in this article. I marked a few that I thought were um, uh, uh, interesting. So one good one, uh, I alluded to this before, but um, again, I think we're talking about Cinnamon Girl here, but it doesn't really mm-hmm. matter. Sometimes all the song's effects fall away only to push forward again. There doesn't seem to be much order to the dynamics. The whole effect is slippery, unattached to the process of telling a story. The song feels more like you're in a story, in someone's head at a particularly unsure moment. I enjoyed that because that was one of the first things I noticed about the album is that um, you really, uh, even though it's uh, very much an accessible uh, pop slash rock album, um, you're really not always sure what direction the songs are going to go in next. You get unexpected um, swells and unexpected quiet parts and um, lyrical turns that you're not looking for. And uh, I really appreciate that level of the craft uh, that went into the whole thing. Mm-hmm. Um, yes. So I thought that was a good description of that from the article. And then there were a couple of things that I thought were really interesting. Just uh, uh, I want to I throw this one at you. Um, music's power to unite is an old-fashioned idea, romantic, even mystical, uh, you know, M-dash, and conservative, in that it argues for art as a conduit for personal transformation rather than an identity marker that fuels political or cultural debate. And I was like, oh, I didn't know they were just ready to admit that, that, um, (laughs) 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 that is considered uh, uh, anti-revolutionary to make a song that is not an identitary identity marker that fuels political or cultural debate. And I was like, Jesus Christ, I guess that's <laughs> where we are. <laughs> um, <laughs> like, can't I just sometimes have a song about being a person? I don't know. Nope. No, 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 no. Silly Paul. Absolutely not. Oh my God. Um, uh, and then one more, um, uh, this is one of those, um, where there's sort of an implied point of view that is not the author's. And, uh, 
you know, like when an author says we do this or something, and you're always like, who the fuck is we? Um, uh, so the rise of the singer-songwriter in the 1960s reinforced the value of narrative pull and shored up other hierarchies. Rock over disco. I think we can all agree with that. Mm-hmm. Uh, sitting and listening over dancing, lyrics over sound. I definitely do not necessarily agree with the last two. Either that they are... I mean, maybe there's some... She actually does give an example in the article then of people who do this. But uh, I think there are plenty of people who don't do that. So I don't know. I thought that was sort of a weird claim. Um, do you prize lyric over sound, Joe? Wow. That really brings it home. Um, probably not. Yeah. Uh, which which I would say it, that, that I may... My reasoning for that might be that I do not think that music is just a vehicle for poetry. Right. That is one of the things it can be. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. Um, yeah, I don't know. Uh, so uh, mostly I really loved this article and thought it was a great example of criticism um, evocati- uh, evoking what is good about a piece of music in a way that helps you understand why you like the music better, which is, I think, what we're trying to do here. Um, this is what I'm trying to do. And uh, uh, overall, um, really appreciated it. And I also, uh, I thought uh, Sadie Dupuis of Speedy Ortiz had a good tweet on the subject of this article where she said, um, yeah, that's exactly what I want out of uh, pop criticism is um, something other than just sheer adulation, which goes hand in hand with the sort of political point that is actually within the article, which is that a lot of the times pop criticism nowadays uh, devolves into um, this music is effective cheerleading for my political preferences or not. And Mm -hmm. uh, if it is, then I will adore it. And if it isn't, then it's problematic, you know? Yeah. Yes. Um, Yeah. Might be too deep into the Lana Del Rey rabbit hole here (laughs) in terms of what she can, she can elucidate about our culture as a whole. Yeah. Well, I mean, no, like I said, shoot, Sadie was talking about Ann Powers there, um, but yeah. Uh, uh, yes. Yeah. Right. Anyway. Yeah. Um, any other thoughts on Lana Del Rey and Norman fucking Rockwell? Um, well, we were going to briefly discuss as like whether um, this album should have gotten a 10.0 from Pitchfork and why no albums get a 10.0. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I mean, I don't personally really care that much about what pitchfork does i just think it's funny that um a 10 just (laughs) isn't possible yes um they haven't given one since kanye's uh one of kanye's albums my beautiful dark twisted fantasy yes which was 2012 10 10 jesus um yeah i mean it's one of those things where you just realize it's probably some editorial decision that they yeah. didn't think it was something that a, a current album should receive versus the um many times they've given it to a reissue since then yeah um i think which, it's also that it's just like you're saying it's literally flawless so if somebody points out a flaw then somebody has to answer a dumb email about it you know it's it's like um the pitchfork 10.0 is probably a relic of when the site was more of a 
um, partisan hype machine for indie music that it mm-hmm. was a broad uh, millennial home, rolling stone uh, yeah right home <laughs> for cultural and art criticism that it is now mm-hmm. um, and uh, yeah you know Casey Musgraves was their second most second best album of last year and it's like in that world mm-hmm. there just aren't perfect albums anymore <laughs> yeah there are no perfect joe that's the the title of the episode there are no perfect albums anymore anyway um, <laughs> um i you know and i don't know i mean i guess it's it's shocking to me that obviously like kendrick has produced yeah uh, two maybe three albums that meet the criteria as established by previous pitchfork mm-hmm. 10.0 winners yeah and uh they seem to have not considered awarding him that um yeah dan was even... like not even that high i think yeah. no they were all above nine actually they were pretty right. high but yeah but like it, it's one of those things where you start to wonder like I don't know. I guess it matters slightly because you kind of want there to be some. It'd, it'd be exciting s- for there to be a 10. That's all. Yeah. Celebration of yeah. Uh, the best art. Um, uh, yeah, I don't know. And, and then to go back and be like the reissue of, you know, Siamese Dream is a 10.0 but this is not, I mean, mm-hmm. I don't know. Like what, what makes Siamese dream like uh, flawless, the reissue of it flawless versus this album. It's like, yeah. you know, even the rose, the rosiest colored glasses, uh, <laughs> you know, I'm like, okay, we could probably apply the same standard to both and come to a extremely similar conclusion to their merits. You know what? I'm going to attempt an off-the-cuff justification of the um, long-standing uh, critical practice of uh, uh, boldly um, retroactively saying that, yes, you agree, uh, such and such an album is a perfect classic. Mm-hmm. Well, after everybody else has already agreed I'm excited. Uh, on that fact. Uh, which is a Rolling Stone classic. Um the three stars the first time it's issued and then uh i think they don't even need a reissue sometimes to justify this they'll just go back and say no actually this album was a five right Fam- famously <laughs> get calling pinkerton the second worst album of the year uh, <laughs> 1997 or whatever yeah um no so uh here we go um my defense of it would be that um uh well first of all uh putting a numerical value on works of art is an at best dubious practice mm-hmm. I, I get why people do it it makes sense in some ways but it's not like um it is pretty funny to have a hundred point scale like pitchfork does let me put it that way um and uh uh so if you're engaged in this already somewhat dubious practice um to uh uh to do this is very difficult especially um mm-hmm. i don't know how much time reviewers always have to figure out uh how much they love these things i have no idea what the process is for pitchfork coming up deciding that something is an 8.7 versus an 8.5 um 
but um, if you're doing it, it's hard to uh it's, you're going to get things wrong uh issuing opinions you're going to change your mind about things after the fact and discussing things uh with people over time is uh exactly what we are doing right now and we do it because we find that it helps us understand the art better so if after a few years of that process you look back on an album and you say you know what i was wrong the first time and i think we can we've all agreed that this album is classic enough to just give it full marks uh i'm okay with the retroactive 10 um it's not as impressive as the proactive 10 mm-hmm. but um uh, uh i don't blame people for uh looking back and saying you know what pretty much flawless as we think about it now yeah i mean i see that um i i, I can't disagree with that i mean i i have to appreciate our own ability to uh, learn, grow, understand mm-hmm. what a piece of art uh, is. Um, do you like how learn and grow just did not agree with the rest <laughs> of that sentence at all? Yeah. Our ability to learn and grow, comma, and then understand more about what a piece of art is um, <laughs> as time passes. And uh, yeah, I mean, it's it's always a good thing and, and to uh, be able to go back and, and have a you would be silly to uh, hope that we got it right um, immediately in the moment. Uh, yeah, when or to insist. Know, yeah. yeah, that so many forces are at play there. Um, nevertheless, the less uh, uh, that that correction can work the opposite way too. Mm-hmm. Um, totally. And uh, I think there's some fear, unnecessary fear, in uh, you know having been the ones to give for instance norman fucking rockwell a 10.0 yeah uh and then having to defend it later like who gives a fuck you'll be dead pitchfork's gonna get shut down in like five years like (laughs) just do what you want yeah totally it would be funny if pitchfork issued a new review of like uh and you'll notice by the trail of dead source tags and codes and was like as albums like an 8.3 we have no idea why we gave it a 10 (laughs) back in the day (laughs) You gotta go back and listen to all the their tens. <laughs> uh, some of them make sense, like Kid A. Oh uh, yeah, yeah. Um, they're all good albums. No, some of them are like are like uh, source tags and codes. Where like I've listened to that al- album, it's pretty good. And there's like there's no way it gets even close to a ten if it comes out today. You know, this is not even remotely a possibility under their current rubric. So well, Kid A, Kid a is a good example. as of something that like would be like a 9.3 right now and it's just like it's definitely a 10.0 but we'll not get into that 10 was the correct choice yes uh we somehow have more to talk about (laughs) (laughs) um well we could hold this conversation for later no god damn it we're here we're gonna talk about it all right um all right well since it was my idea i'll introduce it all right yeah um so I was listening to Aphex Twins' 2014 comeback album, Zero, mm-hmm. which, Jesus Christ, is five years old already. Um, uh, it's Good actually, Lord. like, this month, five years old. So we'll also call this a five-year anniversary uh, note on the album. Um, uh, I was listening to my vinyl copy of it on my good headphones, and I was like, just, you know, uh, I've always, I've loved that album ever since it came out. Uh, I was... Uh, it, was one of the most exciting 
album possibilities you could have told me would be exist in 2014 um and but listening to it i was like this album is just fucking great like so good and then i was thinking uh you know um uh you know i often think this sometime this way sometimes you know like i don't know if this is the best thing or if it is my favorite thing mm-hmm. but there's nothing i can say is definitively better than this thing on whatever criterion i'm thinking of whatever axis um and uh so then i was thinking like you know like this would be a worthy choice as uh if i said this was my favorite album i'm not sure i would be wrong and um uh i would i would certainly feel okay about that and then i was thinking like yeah if I said Aphex Twin Zero was my favorite album, there are ways to argue against that. It could be called pretentious and um, annoying and uh, so on and so forth. And the album has virtually zero political valence unless you really stretch it. So if that's your thing, uh, it's not uh, getting you anywhere. Um, uh, but along the axes I care about, which have to do with like, you know... Um, uh, something you know, there are lots of them, but like uh, uh, production quality, you know, sound, um, compositional impressiveness, um, excitement, uh, beauty, uh, whatever. Lots of those sorts of things. Um, I don't think it can be marked down in any of those areas. So I would feel confident. In, um, you know, one thing you worry about as a music fan is being looked down on by yet better music fans than you. I would feel confident throwing that out as my favorite album to pretty much anybody. And uh, if they did disagree with me, I'm not sure I would agree with their basis for doing so. You know what I'm saying? So, yeah, it was an interesting idea to me. I'm not sure I actually would say it's my favorite album, but I wouldn't feel (laughs) defeatable saying that. I don't know what I okay so when I hear you talk about that there's just there's so much insecurity tied <laughs> to this statement yeah totally of like what your favorite album is and I I, I I do get that I mean yeah obviously when you want to make a designation of your favorite album you want to make a list of your top albums you definitely you want other people to acknowledge that those albums are good you kind of want to find that kinship you want to find that recognition that you know what you're talking about and you want to be able to have like be like you know within this discussion of what the best music of our time is whatever Mm -hmm. you define as our time so in that sense you're hoping that you are um perhaps uh you know self-aware enough that your life is examined enough that you are able to you know truly access the best of art and Mm -hmm. uh kind of join the the community that that also does so um but uh at i i think when you then also when you start to think about this term your favorite album yeah um and analyze it that kind of breaks down a bit um because you 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 know when you when you think about how you're coming up with this Mm -hmm. um there are uh certain markers by which you could do it and um 
I'm not really sure. I'm actually, I'm kind of coming into this with a lot of ideas, but not, not a conclusion. Uh huh. Um, yeah, I agree with you that there's a lot of, uh, it's an insecure thought to have, mm-hmm. um, for sure. Um, and arguably there's been a lot of progress made in the last decade or so on breaking down the uh, hierarchies that allow some music fans to sneer at other music fans for their bad taste. Mm-hmm. Um, which is ultimately what I'm talking about is like, um, you know, uh, a choice that will, uh, that nobody uh, you care about can say proves you have bad taste. <laughs> um, and, um, yeah, that's why I wouldn't actually say Zero is my favorite album. Uh, it's just an interesting thought experiment in that leads you towards these sorts of questions. So I'm glad you brought them up. Of like, uh, should I give that much of a shit about whatever what other people think about my favorite album, or uh, does that kind of opinion like if you if there's some mm-hmm. access where you care about uh, the like let's say I didn't care about sort of like technical excellence so yeah. much, which would be an opinion that lots of uh, very tasteful uh, musicians and critics and fans have had, you know, specifically the punk movement is uh, a rebellion against the idea of technical excellence as an important factor whatsoever. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and uh, so let's say I didn't care about that. Um there are lots of things I could choose, but as a matter of fact, I do care kind of to be able to appreciate uh, things that have a sort of um, virtuosic uh, technical uh, dimension. Mm-hmm. And um, if my choice for my favorite album didn't have that and somebody pointed that out, I would have a tough time. Uh, you know, I would always be able to say like, yeah, well, it just, you know, this still moves me in a certain way that more technically accomplished things uh don't and i would be okay with that but on the other hand i would get what they were saying you know what i mean well yes i mean so let's break it down i mean when you think about it the most basic way to determine your favorite album would be frequency like it is the album that you listen to the most could be just by default you'd say well this is the music i've listened to the most whether it's like number of plays or time listened you know Mm -hmm. like that that is your favorite album right like you could if you were able you know if you were still using the if you're still scrobbling listens to last fm as i did for a long time Mm -hmm. um scrobbling (laughs) (laughs) we need to repurpose that verb it was actually a pretty good word i love Uh, that term Um, yeah you know you could you could see what your favorite album was for the year or for you know all time based on that metric like what did you listen to the most Um, yeah um, and that strips it of any critical analysis. That's just your kind of, you know, uh, your habits yeah. kind of dictating what you like, what that album is your favorite. We'll call um, it a dumb, simple metric. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And then, you know, on this podcast, we've added something to frequency. We've added meaning, mm-hmm. which is like... You know, although meaningful music, it falls across a wide spectrum of quality. Um, you know, there's something about your favorite album should also have some meaning to you. Um, 
as opposed to an album that maybe you've happened to listen to, you know, in the background or you listened to a lot when you were a kid or, you know, when you were like a teenager or something like that, you know, maybe the blue album is the album I've listened to the most, like still. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's, it is definitely not my favorite album. Um, even despite its meaning for me. Um, mm-hmm. uh, and, and here, even though that, that distinction breaks down a little bit because, you know, you could say lots of albums, um, independent of quality, could have meaning for you. Um, as I said, like, I think I've mentioned that, like, Cold plays a rush of blood to the head. Like, it's not a great album, but, like, it's, you know, meaningful to me still in terms of, like, some, you know, some specific times I was listening to it, like, in a, this, like, really cool party one of the last days I was in Australia, mm-hmm. or, you know, with, like, um, you know, like, with, with you know, friends back in whenever that was, like, 2003, like, um, so it, that's not, like, a firm indication there either. Um yeah. Uh, frequency or meaning. Um, yeah. And then we come to what you said. I mean, there's, there's so then to make this distinguish of our favorite album, we have to, it has to kind of bring in this quality called what's the, you know, the best. And, um, I, I think that just really breaks down to, um, we decide okay our favorite album can come uh, from a limited pile of critically acclaimed works uh Mm -hmm. they have to get good reviews and uh you know people have to be willing to accept that you're giving your 10.0 to it so really kind of what we're talking about here is that there's this uh, your favorite is under review by other people to some extent yeah and that you're really saying if we're using the criteria kind of that you're laying out um which i probably i feel like i do is that you're really saying your favorite album of a um i think probably very limited Hmm. uh number of albums through which like other um people who care as much about music as you do um, would accept yeah and i mean that's uh that's accurate enough and i think the reason it's worth thinking about this is that one of the hard things with uh critical judgments is figuring out how much t- privilege to give your own idiosyncrasy and how much to give um like i don't know lots of us have have dumb opinions that we later realize like the uh, the 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 rest of the people we are interlocutors, let's say, um, mm. were more correct about than we were at one point. <laughs> um, so uh, I don't know. It's just an interesting way to me of picking apart the process of figuring out um, how to have good taste and yeah. what that even means. You know, I, you know. Yes, totally. <laughs> yes, and I think I, you know, we bring up. Billy Corgan in in funny ways a lot, but he mm-hmm. recently, you know, in his and read his Instagram stories where he answers fan questions, and it, it 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 was interesting to me that someone said, "Oh, you know, Pisces is my favorite, and that's it's an underrated album." And he's like, 
I'm paraphrasing, but he's like, well, it's not underrated to me, you know, like hundreds <laughs> of hundreds, but like, you know, because yeah. hundreds of people have said to him that it's his favorite album. And it's like, oh yeah. Like if you've written, if you have, you know, uh, an, uh, discography of of albums that people love like over your life you're gonna hear yeah uh, probably countless number of people tell you how much they love each one of them yeah and sort of that distinction of like that someone is special because they like this album over that album will necessarily melt away because you just see that like whole spectrum of people who you know like these different albums and uh, I thought that Billy, when he went on to make the point that there's something about that need to possess the album mm-hmm. that's like kind of um, um, selfish. And in my perspective, now this is me maybe actually expanding on that. It's it's like it's it's kind of it's wrong and imp- it's it's almost impossible. Like when you say this is a favorite album, you're trying to possess something that you can't possess. That's fair, actually. And, you know, it's it's this desire to kind of, like, own this music, which you'll never... It's stolen uh, valor. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yes, it is. Um, and, uh, you know, how Who's do... your commanding producer, <laughs> sir? <laughs> yes. And, like, how to, how to approach music... I mean, I, I can conceptualize of a way to, like, approach music outside of those terms but it's it's difficult i mean it's definitely not how yeah um people who love music are introduced to it and how we uh talk about it so wow um, joe i feel like you have broken the dichotomy in an effective way <laughs> thanks um, billy not that i set up a dichotomy but yeah. um uh uh no that's a good point that uh the act of even saying this or that is my favorite maybe doesn't have to be but is often uh i mean i literally just earlier said that david gilmore is my favorite guitarist Mm -hmm. um uh can be a way of uh less extolling the virtues of your favorite thing and more extolling the virtues of yourself um and when you do it in the way i was talking about in a way where you're going to not be able to be criticized for it. Maybe that's actually the worst version of that. Um. <laughs> yeah. Well, when you put it that way, it kind of sounds like it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Um, uh, well, it, a, a, a moment of critical synthesis on Savage Beast. I'm enjoying yeah. this. <laughs> but in, in defense of that, like, I mean, <sighs> yeah, I, you know, what's, what's, is, it's not necessarily like wrong mm-hmm. to want to uh, validate your own thoughts or, and opinions and, and yeah, or to, to figure gained. out whether you're full of shit or not, you know, yes. like there are a lot of people who are full of shit out there who I wish would figure that out. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and you probably like approach a point, you know, rapidly where you're like, you can break down whether any, like, uh, whether any of our like, value judgments have any meaning when it comes to like human creations or you know what sure uh, what art means at all um mm-hmm. you, you you can kind of maybe like spiral out of control there where you're like 
there is what does, nothing. Nothing is good or bad. Yeah. What does life even mean, man? <laughs> yeah. I mean, one um, step away from there. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yes. Um, so it, it's probably uh, there's probably inherent value in celebrating your opinions and choices mm-hmm. um, in this manner. Um, that uh, ultimately. I guess it, it probably traces back to what we've been doing, which is talking about the you know music that's meaningful to us and mm-hmm. um, kind of tracing the lessons, thoughts, uh, uh, questions that come from yeah. those experiences. Figuring out how to derive more meaning out of music uh, through talking about what music means. You yeah. know? Yes, yes. That's what we're and here for. And I think it's it's okay to say that there are some albums that objectively um, serve that purpose better than others. Yeah, I would agree. I mean, I think uh, I think I'm pretty well convinced that some things are good and some things are bad. Um, uh, I, I will I will stand by that. But um, yeah, it remains fraught figuring out how you figure out uh, which ones those are. Yeah, uh, on the margins. Um, Paul, I'll end with um, just randomly. I was trying to think of like a, a good um, border borderline case. That's not quite like trying to figure out where the line is mm-hmm. for this kind of album. And I think the Strokes is this it mm. is the best I came up with. Whereas if someone was like, "That's my favorite album," I'd be like, "Yep, I I totally can see that. I get that. Totally." Um, but it may be right where the line is. Yeah, in terms of like, not the most revolutionary choice of all time. It was kind of mm-hmm. a a retro throwback thing that updated a classic sound for the then modern era. Um, I think that's a good choice actually, for uh, right on the line because I would absolutely not impugn anybody for it. But um, it's not like, yeah, yeah. I you wouldn't would be like, choose if it someone myself. said that was the best album, you'd be like, uh. Yeah, well, so that's the thing is. Favorite. If like, you say right. favorite, I'll accept almost anything. Um, True. Now, some things, like if you said my favorite album is, uh, uh, you know, Britney Spears' second album, whatever that is or whatever, like, I'm not going to disagree with that as a matter of fact. Uh, apparently, it's true. You just said it. Right. Um, well, no, but there's judgment. You know, like, yeah, yeah. I'm just the line where there's no judgment. Probably not going to try to talk to you about music very much. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. No, no, okay. So, yeah, yeah. I get it. I get what you're saying. And that <laughs> so makes really a lot of sense. What we're looking for is what, what counts as a favorite album where people who care about music won't just be like, ah, I'm just not going to talk to this person. <laughs> yeah. As a best case option. <laughs> uh, what favorite albums make you uh, will allow you to be like satisfy that? Please, please talk to me. I'm important. I know things. In your head. <laughs> I'm smart. Yeah, I'm cool. People like me. <laughs> yes, I'm cool. That's it. Yes. Oh man. Um, Welcome to a podcast about two dudes trying to be cool. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's been a long process. We're not sure yeah. we're, we're there yet. The podcast goes on. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, well, if this is your favorite podcast. Uh, oh, man, terrible choice. Fuck you. <laughs> I, or maybe you're the coolest that could be. Maybe yeah. this is the, the coolest choice. 
But what if somebody tries to argue that this is the best podcast? I think it's incontrovertible, personally. Hmm. Um, hmm. Yeah. Um, then, then they would have... You know what? Uh, oh, go ahead. They'd be judging some podcasts in ways that I do not understand. And I respect <laughs> that. Well, uh, I'm going to use this as the best possible segue into asking you to please go do judge our podcast on an... Uh, Apple Podcasts or whatever they call it now with five stars and then rate and review and all that shit and share it with your friends because we want uh, to be to get rich from this podcast and be able to do it poorly and then people can say our best work was back before we were famous I think that'd be pretty nice it still might happen yeah it could happen um, any final thoughts Jim uh, 